0: Brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Razor Podcast. I'm Shanice Omara,
1: and I'm Emma Keeling. Today
2: on Razor, I look at the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Figure out a virus that would be so, so pathogenic and so diabolical would just be beyond the belief of my belief that it could happen, that somebody could do that. Path. And I have a go on an e-scooter. The
3: the challenge has been, you know, the acceptance of what what actually is a solution, a great solution to urban mobility.
1: I don't know about you, Shinny, but I'm feeling a little bit just sort of flattened lockdown. So it's nice to chat about something that's interesting and and hopeful too.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you know what? I think we're
1: easing out of it. So I want to get moving. Allegations that the coronavirus may have escaped from a laboratory or even been created are part of an infodemic of misinformation. Exactly. And there's been no shortage of speculation about the political origins of the virus. Our producer Neil Cairn spoke to Susan Weiss, who has been studying coronaviruses for most of her career. He started off by asking if she believed that the coronavirus was created in a lab. Um, everybody
2: asks that question. Because if you look at the sequence of it, it's very similar to SARS, the first SARS, but it's different enough and it's different all across the genome. So it would be really hard to imagine that somebody could think of a virus that would look like that. There's no sort of, usually when you, if you were to make a virus, you would start with a cloned virus, a cloned DNA, and there's no known clone virus that looks like that. So, and, and to figure out a virus that would be so, so pathogenic and so diabolical would just be beyond belief of my belief that it could ha- that somebody could do that. that. Do we even have the technical expertise, except for some mythical evil genius somewhere? I don't think so. I mean, you could, you could, you could make a virus, but to make this virus, I think, would be very difficult mm. or impossible.
0: Emma, you've recently done a big story on the origins of the virus. What do you make of this assertion that the
1: virus was created in a lab? Well, COVID-19 has become pretty political, hasn't it? And it's easy for people to get swept up by what their government or their left or right-leaning officials might say. Now, I'm not a virologist. So all I can do is trust the scientists who are or who understand how viruses come to be and how they spread. So all the scientists I've spoken to believe it's come from the wild. Now, the closer humans live to wilder habitats, the easier it is for these zoonotic viruses to jump from animals to humans because we're in closer contact. SARS was linked to coronaviruses in bats. And so that's why it looks like SARS-CoV-2 which is the virus that causes COVID-19 might have come from a bat. We don't know that yet. Um, Now bats carry thousands of viruses. Uh, We don't know what they all are but this phylogenetic analysis is a way of understanding the genetic history of an organism. So scientists have used it to trace the origins of these viruses. So the more similar the genetic code, the closer they are related. So you could look at the Nipah virus as an example. The first outbreak was 99. Um, Humans were infected because they had eaten pig products and the pigs had got it by eating fruit that had been eaten. Oh, my gosh. I know. you are an absolute (laughs) expert. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, I I do want to cover this point about the Nipah virus. I am going on and on, you're correct, but I am getting a bit swept up in it. But if you look at the Nipah virus... So it was, it came about because um, the bats sort of urinated or were, had eaten fruit, which was then eaten by pigs, and then humans ate that. So that's how they traced that genetic code of the virus. But we don't know the origins of SARS-CoV-2. But according to Professor Weiss, to create a virus, you would start with a clone, and there's no such clone to this virus. So it's really complicated. It, it's like nature's Rubik's Cube designed by an evil genius.
0: Mm, Yeah, I mean, we've been talking to so many different experts, haven't we? And they all seem to say the same thing, which is that it's too complicated to have been engineered by humans.
1: I mean, it's beyond us. Oh, completely. And, and, you know, if you sort of say, well, it wasn't engineered by politicians or, you know, again, evil geniuses. I mean, it does seem very far-fetched. It seems as though we've been outsmarted
0: yet again by Mother Nature, because... The way this virus has developed, it's just too complex to have been one step to another. You know, it it would have evolved over time, is my point.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, you know, if you sort of say, well, we're, why weren't we ready, or were we ready? Were the scientists ready? And I think the the scientists have always been ready. And they knew it was coming. Uh, they were advising the governments. Um, we heard that governments had pandemic plans. We heard that they'd gone had emergency run throughs. But it seems that the you know issues raised weren't sorted out. So, uh, I think you know the, the scientists were ready. Um, but maybe we just didn't take it seriously enough. So look, instead, let's listen to what Susan
2: Weiss had to say about it. I think, you know, vaccines were started for SARS and MERS and never really came to fruition because they went away. Well, MERS is still around. MERS did not go away, but it stayed in the Middle East. Um, I think we will go for vaccines, but a vaccine against this virus may or may not work against the next one, so we need to continue, like, have a vaccine platform so we can quickly do that again. Or and or uh, antivirals for the for temporary uh, relief. Uh, I think I think we will take it more seriously. I hope so.
0: I know Emma that you did another interesting story about finding a
1: vaccine recently. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so I spoke to Nick Kamick. He's from the Wellcome Trust research charity. Now, it's a politically and financially independent foundation, and they have around about 34 billion US dollars in their investment portfolio, and they take on big health and science research projects around the world. So I felt Nick could give us a really good overview of what's going on. And he has a really optimistic timeline about when we can expect to find a vaccine.
4: So I think um, from a vaccine perspective, um, my personal perspective is that we are at perhaps uh, a year away, nine months to a year. I think the, there is rapid progress. There are six candidates now in clinical trials, but we've got to see that they're going to be safe and also effective. Uh, but th- that will move really quickly. So uh, I'll say a year and I sincerely hope I'm proven wrong. For treatments, I think we will continue to evaluate the medicines that are out there and hope to have some benefit. I think what will come next will be monoclonal antibodies. So these are antibodies that have been developed from people who were infected with COVID-19 and imagine sort of um, large-scale production of individual antibodies that kill off the virus. I think they'll be the next treatments And we'll see those going into the clinic in the next couple of months. And maybe early next year, again, safety and scale up uh, and effectiveness to be evaluated.
0: So Emma, what's it been like
1: doing these COVID-19 stories for you? Uh, well, I I must say at times it's been quite depressing and worrying. <laughs> um, but uh, look, I, I'm sure scientists don't go through the emotional swings that people like you and I do. Um, but look, they've, they've known about and been studying about viruses and pandemics, you know, for many of them for their whole careers. Um, and, and I guess I, I like their ca- the calming way that they speak to me, their patience. Um, you know, they know how long developing treatments takes. This is all very new to us, um, so they've got they're very pragmatic and, as I said, very patient. And as we ask all these different questions, but they're also very cautious, especially when you ask how long will it take to get a vaccine. But look, I think even they have been encouraged by the global collaboration between scientists and encouraged by how quickly research is happening, despite how long we think it's taking. I mean, what's the feeling that you've been getting from the scientists you've been chatting to? Well, I've been really swept up with all their
0: enthusiasm, because I know that this lockdown's been a bit doom and gloom, and it's all been really worrying, and it's all got quite political. But a lot of the scientists I've talked to are so excited that for decades even, that they've been working on, you know, either solutions or research or, you know, different Perspectives, scientific perspectives of COVID-19, they're finally able to put all of that knowledge into practice. And so a lot of the people that I've interviewed, whether it's volunteer engineers or, you know, people who have really mastered the art of 3D printing or um, are working at the Synchrotron and have been working on vaccines for a long, long time, they're all just so excited that they've got this really important important
1: impactful and powerful problem to solve and they're kind of relishing it up i think they're also excited too that i you mean know, as as difficult and as hard and tragic as this pandemic's been they they're excited too because it's as you say, their knowledge is coming together. But people are interested in science. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the scientists I talked to, he said, "It's so nice to be relevant." You know, he was, <laughs> he was joking, but yeah. I think you know, everybody's taking a, a much a, a greater interest in science, which is a, which is I think is fantastic.
0: Yeah, we're now seen as heroes. You know, scientists <laughs> are now saving the day, and people are looking to them saying, Can you give us some answers, please? Because it's just far too complex, and only you know how to process the data. And so finally, scientists are cool again. Has anyone had any kind of attitudes of,
1: I told you so? You mean scientists saying, Mm. I told you so. You know what? If I was a scientist, I would be scolding those politicians like a parent. You know, you don't listen to me. I told you this before. But look, scientists are bigger people. They're bigger and better than that. They're pragmatic. And so it's more a case of saying, okay, yep, this is where we're at. So let's sort this out. But yeah, I haven't even seen a hint of that. I mean, maybe there's that little twinkle in the eye of, yeah, we've been saying this for ages, guys, but yeah. They've been very polite and very diplomatic. Yeah, I think also on the
0: flip side, though, there are a lot of scientists who have done science in a particular way. Peer review, for example, um, the fact that science does take a long time, who are feeling very rushed and pressured to deliver information and answers when actually those answers take time. You know, things have to be checked. um, They have to be accurate. They have to be sure of... Uh, the message that they're delivering and sometimes we as um, an audience that are desperate for news really just want to know and you know so I think there's the the age-old sort of um conflict between the pace of science and the pace of needing information as a general public uh is kind of showing its ugly head that sort of clash that normally happens between the yeah. two
1: yeah I mean I to Nick Kermock you know I, I, I apologized when I said to him, "Can you, you know, what's your timeline for for a vaccine?" You know, and, I, and it was like an eye rolling moment. But it's, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's what we all want to know. And again, he didn't roll his eyes at me. He was very nice about it. But as you say, they have to be so cautious. They they don't want to be rushed. They need to get this right. But they're also trying to give us a little bit of hope too. I I think so. They're sort of you know sort of blurry one to two year thing i mean mm. let's hope fingers crossed they, they get it done quicker than that but yeah they've, they've got to try and, and be cautious and, and take their time
0: as we emerge from lockdown and begin to return to work we need to start looking at how we commute without breaking the principles of social distancing
1: Oh, here we go, Shinny, We cannot have jetpacks. You're right. I don't have a spare couple. Of, I don't have a spare couple of hundred thousands. I've bought too much stuff on Amazon in the lockdown. But I'm a pro at this now. Did you <laughs> see how I trialled it? I yes, was round really in a circle. So I guess that is still isolating if you're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. But you know what?
0: It's not quite right. It's not jetpacks this time. It's scooters, mm. and uh, they're a lot more practical. And I got to talk to John Irving, who's the founder and CEO of AER Electric, who might have found a way to solve the problem of getting around.
3: I am John Irving. I'm the founder of Air Electric. We're based here in Macclesfield in in the UK. Uh, We are the designer and manufacturing creator of the Air Electric 557. We started in 2017 and we are an award-winning product. We won the Eurobike award uh, last year, last summer. Uh, we start manufacture next month. When we started the, the, the process here, actually scooters were only legal in the US and, and that was our target market. So all of the focus was in the US uh, and then Europe started to change, um, Germany most notable. So the focus moved to, to Germany and then, you know, our our plans change and we're now looking at, at the UK.
1: Oh, I see. E scooters, this is the great solution. I mean, this is not new technology, is it? So why do you think this is going to be our social distancing saviour?
0: Well, first of all, this is absolutely the way forward because they're electric. So there's none of that horrible polluting greenhouse gases um, issue. Uh, it's just it's a wonderful way of getting around. And I yeah, must have say- bicycle though, right? Bicycles do that too. They do. But, you know, scooters are a completely different experience because bicycles do involve some kind of work, whereas with a scooter, you literally
1: just stand aboard and you're ready to go. Uh, Right. Chinny, you've got one of these scooters. So at, at the moment, I'm thinking like a Vespa, but this is not the case. So maybe you need to describe it. Oh, no, absolutely not. These are
0: little, I mean, they're just like push scooters, you know, the ones that you operate with one foot. But rather than pushing anything, you literally just push a button. Um, You can stand on a platform, it's got two small wheels, and you're standing upright as you travel, which is completely not the case with the scooters that we tend to think of, where you're sitting down um, on something that looks like a motorbike.
1: Now, from what I've read, there are different rules in different countries. And in the UK, isn't there a ban on on these kind of of things? So how, how close are we to actually people being allowed to use it for everyday commute? You're absolutely
0: right. There is a ban. They are currently illegal, although I must say that I'm seeing more and more people on them because they're just so nippy for getting around cities. And lots of different cities in Europe and beyond have them as sort of rentable scooters where you use a barcode to activate them. And, um, you know, those cities are doing the right thing because they are such a clean, green and uh, nifty way of getting around. London is surprisingly far behind and it's because of a very old law that prohibits any electric... And motorised vehicles from uh, being on our roads and pavements, which means that all the cycle lanes that we already have, which you know are great to a certain extent, will not accommodate electric vehicles because they're motorised. The good news is is that trials are already underway, which might legalise them very soon.
3: Well, the the, the law is you, the current law relates to um, electric vehicles basically, uh, in as much as You know, a scooter is a powered vehicle, so it's essentially a motorcycle as far as the the government are concerned. Um, Electric bikes, which has gone through a massive growth in in the last decade or so, more more so in Europe. Um, You know, this is assisted, it's an assisted vehicle, so therefore it kind of bypasses the law. So the the challenge has been, you know, the acceptance of what what actually is a solution, a great solution to urban mobility. You know, it's non-legal, and and this has kind of been a crazy uh, thing for us to get our head around. But with Germany really spearheading all of this in Europe, and now the need for people to move around cities, perhaps without the use of um, public transport, you know, this is the right time for a product like this. And you know this fast track over these next months to put this legal to create these cycle lanes to get people out this is uh, this is great for us
1: so you bought the scooter i've seen the scooter i've seen you on the scooter but they are illegal so are you a rebel are you driving around an e-scooter packs
0: no i'm allowed to use it on private roads and so it's nice to have a bit of a play on it you know there but it's it's not now an option for getting to work which is really really sad and I've resorted to public transport um, like everyone else but you know, I am absolutely waiting with bated breath for the trials to be over and for London to finally get into the 21st century and
1: let electric and motorized vehicles be a thing you may have convinced me as long as I can get a set of training wheels for my first one I think I'll be okay stabilizers <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> That brings us to the end of another edition of Razor. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Until next time, bye.